Good afternoon and welcome to Noon Edition with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. This week we are joined on Noon Edition by Indiana University political science professors Marjorie Hershey and Ted Carmines who will answer our questions and yours about Tuesday's elections in Indiana. Thank you both for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, before we get started, it's my duty to point out there are a few ways, including a new way to submit your questions to our panel during the next hour. If you're near a telephone, you may want to jot down these two phone numbers. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send in a written question by going to our new Noon Edition website. That's wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And while you're there, you can also join the conversation by leaving a comment about this week's show if you like to. So I want to start by asking the both of you if you think this presidential election year is the most historic in your memory or longer or ever? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, no. <laughs> I think we often tend to uh, think about the unique circumstances of a particular race. Um, but the races before have often had unique circumstances as well in terms of the amount of emotion and energy and intensity involved in this race. When I was a kid in Evanston, Illinois, um, the day after John F. Kennedy won the presidential race, a good number of kids in my school came to school wearing black armbands. Um, this is this is not the first time we've had a very intense race, but the way it's unique, of course, is that we have the first um, black American candidate of a major party, and that has provided some um, some really unusual and interesting opportunities to look at American voters and what influences them and how well we can measure what it is that they're about to do, which is a big question for me right now, whether the polls um, do an accurate job of measuring people's sentiments toward a black candidate. Yeah, you know, I think for Hoosiers, this is a very unique uh, election because certainly uh, in our recent memory, there's been nothing like the kind of intensity of campaigning at the presidential level uh, that we've had in Indiana. And uh, I think that's been very exciting for Hoosiers, whichever mm -hmm. side you're on. Uh, you know, usually um, in the over 30 years I've been here, the presidential election campaign goes by and it kind of bypasses Indiana. Mm -hmm. It's considered such a Republican state that very – Republicans don't – candidates don't feel like they have to campaign here and Democrats don't take the time to campaign here. So you, uh, in that sense, I think it's been a very unusual year. Uh, for Hoosiers, and I hope that it's one that can be repeated in my lifetime because <laughs> it's been very exciting to see the intensity and interest on uh, both sides in terms of this election campaign. I think it's fascinating for me the extent to which my students don't normally see a presidential campaign. It just completely bypasses us. As Ted said, neither side has any particular reason for uh, for coming in here. So when I talk about campaign strategies and uh, various different types of canvassing and campaigning, they have no idea. Um, this isn't something that they ever see. Now they're, they're really seeing it. I want to get to our, our first phone call real quick. Uh, Alex is on the line. Alex, thanks for calling in. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is, uh, I was wondering if you guys had any comment as to uh, why you thought it was that the McCain camp, uh, even when seeding the fact that you know their own internal polling data is not looking great at best, uh, why it is they aren't uh, taking a strategy similar to uh, Bob Dole did in '96 when he started trying to do uh, some damage control, if you will, by uh, focusing more on campaigning for uh, Congress, uh, members of Congress. Didn't know if you guys had any comment toward that. My sense is that um, obviously the McCain camp's internal polls um, must not be too different from what we're seeing nationally, but this is, this is a reasonably close race still. Um, it's closer nationally than it is state by state, and of course it's the state by state results that really count. But uh, there are enough 
people who are calling themselves undecided in the polls that if you hold the theory that a lot of those undecided voters may be voters who at the end will not be able to vote for a black candidate, um, it's possible that McCain could still win. So I'm. I don't think. I think that's a. I think that's a hope that the. I hate to call it a hope. Uh, that's a possibility that the McCain campaign uh, could still benefit from. Marjorie, let me follow up with you on that because um, before I came in, I was listening to some poll results, and they said that um, uh, Obama right now has a ten percent lead in the in the polls, and that only five percent of voters who say they are likely to vote are saying that they're undecided. So. How does that gel with your comment? The question is um, the extent to which people's racial feelings are already expressed in their presidential choice as they tell it to pollsters or whether they have yet to be expressed. In other words, the question is are people fibbing to poll takers or not? Mm -hmm. Um, This has been known for a long time as the Bradley effect. I'm Mm -hmm. sure Ted will have a lot to say about that. my suspicion is that the Bradley effect, which is the um, the finding that a certain proportion of people who would otherwise vote for a Democratic candidate, in the end, although they tell the pollster that they will vote for their party, decide that they can't accept a black candidate and vote uh, for somebody else. We found this was suspected to be the case um, in the case of Tom Bradley, who was the black mayor of Los Angeles, ran for governor of California in the early 1980s, and was way ahead in the polls, and then was narrowly beaten on election day. Um, we have not seen a lot of evidence of the Bradley effect since that time. My suspicion is there's some good reason to think that this is not going to happen. Because there are lots of reasons why people could tell pollsters that they support John McCain anyway. Um, Obama's inexperienced. They are a Democrat, but they are worried about his associations. But, um, but you know, the truth of that is not going to be revealed until Tuesday night. So. Well, okay. Does the Bradley effect possibly counteract the fact that young voters, many of whom don't have landlines, only have cell phones and can't be polled in the traditional manner, um, they're, they're not being figured into the polls. Well, that's true in some of the polls. The more sophisticated polls now, now though, do include um, cell phones. So more and more, as you say, uh, in the kind of normal land phone survey design, they aren't included. Many young people only use a cell phone. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, um, the more reputable national polls now include a separate sample of random dialing of people with cell phones. And they combine the two uh, samples to, for their estimates. But, so if I go back to this question that the questioner had earlier, I think one of the things – it's always one of these situations as we get down to um, the election time – in terms of in a situation that uh, Senator McCain finds himself in, um, you know, should the party really try to retain what it can do in terms of the House and Senate vis-a-vis how much they should put into the presidential candidate? I think if the House and Senate, if that was much more in play this year in terms of which party was going to control the House and Senate, mm-hmm. I think there'd be a lot more pressure on Senator McCain actually to devote more time and actually give resources to the congressional campaigns. But the real question this year is probably going to be, you know, how did the Republicans in the House and Senate limit their losses? And so in a way, it's not quite so compelling. If they were really in play as to which party was going to control, I think Senator McCain would be under a lot of pressure to actually devote resources and so forth to the to the congressional campaigns. But that's not the case. And as Margie said, uh, one can certainly think uh, of a path to a victory for Senator McCain. It's not an easy path mm-hmm. at this point. In fact, it's a very difficult one. But it's not completely out of the question. And I think as long as that's the case, given the congressional races, they'll keep the you know emphasis on the at the presidential level for the McCain people. Let's talk a little more about polling. I mean, we've seen a lot of polls this year 
most of which, especially where the presidential race is concerned in Indiana, are within the margin of error. Very few outliers have either candidate with a big enough lead that you're outside the margin of error. Uh, and there are even questions about those outliers as to whether their methodology is good enough to say that this, these numbers are worth anything at all. Should we, should we stop listening to polls in, in general? I mean, is, are the polls that are within the margin of error worth anything? And, and would you just give us an idea, first of all, how margin of error is calculated? Because I don't think a lot of people understand how that works. And secondly, what could be done to make either the margin of error so small that it's only one or two points so that you know a, a three or four point edge is enough to actually declare something or must the methodology be changed entirely and we start from scratch so that these polls mean something? Well, the margin of error in the kind of polls that we have is really primarily dependent on the, the differences that they find in the candidates and how large the samples are that you have. So for most national polls, they're about 3 or 4 percent. Now, as you say, and, and this has been quite consistent, um, the polls in Indiana between Senator McCain and Senator Obama have been extremely close. Now, I wouldn't pay much attention to any single poll, but I think you know the last three polls that we've had, which have been quite consistent with one another in Indiana, have all shown – uh, them to be either tied or within a point of one another. It's not likely that all three of those polls are incorrect. So as you get an accumulation of polls taken about the same time, you can have much more confidence in them than you can any single poll. I think the real problem that pollsters face is that, um, yeah, it would be possible to limit the margin of error. The margin of error is just um, the the degree to which you have to have a little bit of flexibility in making generalizations from the number of people you're actually calling in a poll who are chosen by scientific methods, probability, random probability methods, and the population as a whole. There's always going to be a little bit of difference between any one sample of that population and the real number of the population as a whole. On the other hand, population as a whole is probably always changing during the time mm-hmm. that these polls are being reported. Um, and the cost would be extremely high. And interestingly enough, the, the real danger to polls, I think, is not so much the cell phone only problem, um, because at least in the past, what's happened is that, yes, we've been under-polling younger people who don't have landlines. On the other people, on the other hand, younger people who don't have landlines are less likely to vote than um, most other people are. Do you think that's still the case even in this election? That may not be. Uh, it's going to be less the case in this election. But, uh, you know, we still see a, a rate of participation among people 65 and older mm-hmm. that is between 50 and 70 percent greater than those of people under the age of 25. That's a pretty big gap to make up. And I don't think those older folks are going to be staying home this year. Um, but I think the, the real the real problem here is that um, once uh, you need to expend those resources to be able to try to get all of those um, non-respondents to the polls, the real problem is the number of non-respondents is growing. We've got more mm-hmm. people who have caller ID mm-hmm. on their phones. They don't pick up when they see a number that doesn't look familiar to them or looks like it's out of out of the area. That number has grown to the point where um, the number of respondents to polls can be as low as 25, 30 percent by phone. Mm -hmm. And so the big question is, is that 25 or 30 percent typical of the other 75 percent that that have not answered? Mm -hmm. Uh, Pew Charitable Trust did an interesting study and found to a great extent, the people that they could actually get of those earlier non-respondents by just, you know, pursuing them with, with bloodhounds, doing everything, they, you know, mm-hmm. calling them 35 times, they, they were able to get a certain chunk of those non-respondents and found there are not big differences between the respondents and the non-respondents with one exception. They did find the non-respondents to be more comfortable with expressing racist sentiments mm-hmm. openly than did those who actually picked up the phone the first time. That's one of the reasons why there's at least some room for for question mm-hmm. here about the accuracy of the polls. But as Ted says, you take an average of the polls, you've probably got as good an indicator as, as we can have. 
A reminder, you can join our conversation by calling us at 812-855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can log on to our new website, wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can leave us a comment or you can send in a a written question uh, to our our guests for today. I don't want to to uh, beat polls to death, but I'm interested in what role you think push polls are playing in this presidential election. You know, I I think they're playing some role. uh, And, uh, you know, I think both campaigns have used them, but especially I think the McCain campaign have used them. Um, You know, they have an odd effect that some voters uh, are so turned off by them that uh, what you hope to gain by the push poll doesn't actually take place, you know, because there is a strong reaction among some voters against them. So – but on the other hand, you might be able to, you know, um, provide the kind of information that they do that does lead, um, you know, a less concerned voter toward one candidate or usually away from one candidate and to another. Mm -hmm. So I don't think actually uh, they've been any more prevalent They've all they've been prevalent in recent presidential elections, and I think in, they have in this one. I, I doubt that they're going to be decisive, just like they haven't been, at least at the presidential level, in recent elections. We saw a push poll in this congressional district in 2006 that, if anything, had a a, a rebound effect. Um, the the campaign. Uh, uh, of Baron Hill was attacked by a push poll by an outside group that was calling basically uh, either randomly or blanketing this area with calls. It was really puzzling. If you're going to do a push poll, which for those of you who are not familiar with that, involves acting like a poll but providing negative information about the other candidate while doing so. In this case, it was a question in which the the um, the person on the other end of the line said. Would you vote for Baron Hill if you knew that he had voted for legislation that would do some outrageous thing? Right. Um, and uh, if if you can confine those calls to the people who are undecided and leaning your way, you might be a little bit more effective. But some of the groups that do these are dumb enough to just call everybody, which probably really antagonizes and motivates the supporters of the candidate who's being attacked, at mm-hmm. least as much as they have the opposite effect. I got to thinking about ways apart from polls that we might also judge who is more popular, especially where the presidential candidates uh, and vice presidential candidates are concerned. And I got to thinking about the number of people who have come out to rallies for Joe Biden and Barack Obama and Sarah Palin as they've been here in the last two weeks and the numbers uh, and maybe this is just a factor of where the rallies are held and I'm curious to know what your thoughts on this are have been consistently larger for Obama and Biden than they have been for Palin. Um, you know, Barack Obama drew 35,000 people in Indianapolis when he was here a week or so ago. Sarah Palin went just north of Indianapolis to an actual outdoor concert venue and drew only 15 or 20,000. I say only. It's still a large number of people. Are these rallies any way that we can tell who might be ahead based on these extremely close polls in Indiana? Do they tell us anything? I don't think they tell you actually a whole lot. I mean there's some uh, thing to take into account. But when you think about them, as you pointed out, a lot depends on where they're being held. Some venues in some areas uh, can accommodate more people than others. It's also when they're being held. That's another factor. Can, do people have to leave work to come there or is it after work? So there's a lot of factors that go into it. The other thing is that in – you know we tend – we want – tend to think that people who come out to these rallies uh, are people who are ardent supporters of the particular candidates. That's not necessarily so. Uh, many times mm-hmm. people just come out because they they want to see mm-hmm. one of these candidates. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily uh, going to vote for the candidate, but they've never seen a, a presidential, vice presidential candidate in the flesh. And so they take <laughs> in the opportunity. Uh, in yeah. Indiana, <laughs> probably have never seen them. So they want to take that opportunity. And uh, – Often, of course, what you're getting at rallies too is um, a large uh, mixture of people who are the intense supporters. And so it's a little hard to judge in terms of how that affects the the total vote that a candidate might get because it's not unusual to have a candidate who has a very intense following. Uh, But when you look at it in terms of the national population, 
is someone that's hopelessly, you know, less popular mm-hmm. than the opposition. So sometimes you can have intense feelings about a candidate and yet they won't appeal to the kind of middle part of the electorate, which provides the large numbers in terms of actually winning an election. So you have to, I think you have to be careful about making too much just of the size and even the intensity of some of these rallies. A little different subject, but traditional wisdom has it that um, high voter turnout is, is good for the Democrats. Lower voter turnout tends to turn out well for the Republicans. What role is early voting, do you think, going to play in this election? That's what I was just going to mention, actually, because um, early voting is a much better indicator, I think, of, of um, the likelihood of one candidate winning than is attendance at rallies. Um, which can measure intensity, although not always, as Ted says, but uh, intensity doesn't count in the voting booth. Um, the intense people have the same one vote as they the press harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there may be some voting machines where. <laughs> that makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> think, think what would happen in Florida. In <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Sense your vote over mm. to the other side. Mm. Um, Early voting uh, is an indicator if it's the case that a campaign that's particularly good at getting out early voting is also particularly good at getting out voting on Election Day. The Obama campaign has uh, clearly had a superior early voting task um, and and effort. And my sense is that the uh, 2008 primaries really advantaged the Obama campaign, as painful as it might have been for them at the time, and as much as they would have probably been grateful to uh, turn down that that blessing at the time. This enabled them to develop an on-the-ground canvassing and organizational force throughout the 50 states because they had to contest everything except Michigan and Florida. That really gave them a huge step up in terms of early voting, and I assume you know that the same will will be the case on Tuesday. Um, and as we know, early voting has been very heavy, and it has been heavier among Democrats. We don't know how those Democrats have voted, but we know that among states where um, we have party registration, the number of Democrats voting early has been significantly higher than the number of Republicans voting early. Yeah, I mean, and this is a big difference than what we had in earlier elections where we just had the traditional absentee ballot. Mm -hmm. Absentee ballots in presidential elections, as in most other elections, have generally been more heavily Republican. But that's the traditional absentee ballot. Uh, These early voting that we've had, and in the future, there's going to be nothing but increase in this. Mm -hmm. So I, I suspect it won't be very long before we get a majority of votes that will be cast in early voting. And that is, as Margie said, that's a pretty good indication of the enthusiasm that the various the parties and the candidates have. Uh, and throughout this election year, there's been in general more enthusiasm among Democrats for Obama than there has been among Republicans for Senator McCain. And that is, uh, shows up in the proportions of Democrats versus Republicans that tend to take the time and effort to uh, engage in early voting. Now, a little bit, if you could educate us about the nuts and bolts of early voting. It's it, it, Those votes won't be counted until when? Until Election Day. Okay. So it's really not going to speed up the, the um, results. Well, it'll speed up the lines at the polls in many areas. But, um, you know, in theory, I think in a lot of states, you could start counting those votes on Election Day before the polls close, at least in some states. The problem is the folks who would be doing the counting, I'm sure, are going to be running ragged that Mm -hmm. day, putting out fires with regard to voting machine problems and long lines and disputes over provisional ballots. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's going to speed up the counting any. But I think the really fascinating thing here is that uh, one of the reasons why we've had this difference that Ted rightly points out between what used to be the party balance in um, absentee ballots and what seems to be the case this year is that many more states are allowing no excuse absentee ballots and mm-hmm. simply early voting with no uh, need to say I'm, my grandmother is going to be dying that day, yeah. so I won't be able to come. You know, and, uh, and the dog ate my ballot. Yeah, <laughs> well, in some cases. <laughs> But, um, you know, in the past, the absentee balloting has tended to be more from people who are um, of 
higher income, higher education who are aware of how you go about getting the absentee ballots, and those have tended to be more Republicans. Now that we've had early voting at a at a central place downtown or no abs, no excuse absentee balloting, um, party organizations have been much more active in trying to canvass people and get them to vote early. Mm-hmm. So we don't see the socioeconomic bias that we did in the past and um, we do see the efforts of party organizational work, which has been much greater this year, at least on the Democratic side. I do want to talk more about early voting, but we have to take a break right now. So we will be back with uh, IU political science professors Margie Hershey and Ted Carmines right after this. Thanks for tuning in to Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini quiz, and movie play and opera reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at WFIU.org. And we are back on Noon Edition with Mary Catherine Carmichael. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We're pleased to be joined this week by Margie Hershey and Ted Carmines, political science professors from Indiana University. You can ask them questions by calling us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. We also encourage you to visit our newly redesigned website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. And while there, you can learn how to send in an email or you can join the conversation by leaving a comment about this week's show. We were talking about early voting before the break and the engagement that that has helped bring to this year's voting process. And it seems that that even when we had record turnouts, well, well, not record turnouts, but largely increased turnouts four years ago, those numbers are almost certainly going to be surpassed this year. Um, do we believe that that those that that trend can be sustained thanks to early voting or thanks to just generally more interest in the presidential election than there has been in some years, especially in a place like Indiana, where oh my golly, we have a we have a competitive race for the first time in forty four years. Well, I think one thing that will depend upon is the degree to which young voters actually turn out to vote. Whether young people actually turn out in the proportions that they possibly could in this election. Uh, as Margie pointed out, uh, as uh, older voters are much more reliable voters than others. But in this election, we might actually get a, a real increase, uh, not just generally across the age groups, but especially among those voters under 30. Now, the question is, if we were to get that this election year, would that be sustained in the future? Or does that have to do with the special circumstances that we have in 2008? And no one really knows. I mean, um, in 2004, we had 100, about 119 million people that voted. Some people have suggested that it might be possible that we would get into the high 130s, which would be an enormous increase. I don't really expect we're going to get there. But there are people who are talking about perhaps up to 10 million more people voting in 2008 in presidential election than 2004, wow. which would be a very big number. Uh, and I think you know one has to – a, see if we actually end up with that uh, number, if we get that real increase that people, some people predicted, and whether that is really a trend or just uh, an outlier you know, because of the very special circumstances that we have in 2008. I will say that as states go more to early voting and make it easier, and these are really state decisions. You know, some states don't have any early voting. 
Uh, and it makes it even – some states make it even difficult to do absentee voting. We have that all the way from you know, mail-in ballots that you can have in places like Oregon. So we have everything in between. But the trend has been overall to making it easier to engage in early voting and even mail-in voting. And there's no doubt that, that those kinds of efforts – do have some impact on increasing turnout. The easier that you make registration and the easier you make voting, the more likely you're to get the less committed, more casual citizen voting. And so I think if, if, when states move in that direction, which they have, if they continue that, it is going to increase the pool of uh, actual voters uh, to make when, when registration and um, early voting uh, is made more accessible to citizens. The trend going in the other direction is that there have been a number of states that have considered um, mm. voter identification requirements, photo identification, proof of citizenship, which now only Arizona requires, but Missouri was debating it as recently as this summer. Um, those do make it tougher for some types of people to vote, um, particularly the least educated, the lowest income, uh, which of course includes a lot of black Americans and other minority Americans. Some elderly people without driver's licenses and disabled people. I want to get to another phone call. Robert is on the phone. Robert, thanks for calling into Noon Edition. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I'm curious, given the, the expected or anticipated increase in the number of voters around the country, what provisions do you think might be made for places that um, don't have early voting and would they extend the hours? I mean, I just sometimes I just call, I just imagine huge lines of people who who may or may not be disenfranchised because of the the fixed hours. Is there any are there any states which would have flexible hours on Tuesday? Or well, just you know, generally, just talk about that question. It's um, it's state by state, and it's precinct by precinct. Um, Sometimes you'll find that in a particular area, uh, in either an area of precincts or a county, that uh, an election official will say, we've got really long lines and it's 9 o'clock and the polls are supposed to be closed. This is, of course, outside Indiana. We're one of the very few places that closes the polls so early. Um, but then courts often have to rule on that. This is really idiosyncratic, in other words. Um, and it also is often partisan. Um, we know that where these long lines are um, can affect the partisan composition of the balloting that's taking place there. If we're talking about Central City St. Louis or, or Central City Gary, uh, whether or not to hold the polls open sometimes depends on whether or not the county officials and the county judges um, are sympathetic to a, a, the Democratic-dominated vote that's going to occur if you keep the polls open or not. Um, and that's that's not anything shocking. Um, we all have partisanship of one kind or another, and uh, we're often influenced by it in ways that we may not even realize. Mm -hmm. There was an interesting moot court case out of Colorado that was decided this week that showed that <clears throat> the, the basic scenario was that if a snowstorm in Denver stopped people from voting for two hours, the question was whether those people, if casting provisional ballots, would have their votes count. And the moot court found, well, yes, in their, in their opinion, they should count. And so clearly this is something that's still being discussed and decided and, and something that I imagine we'll see discussed and decided, especially as the, the political landscape continues to change, which this election seems to suggest will happen. No, I think that's exactly right. And if you look, uh, as Margie s said, this is very much a st the state's really set the rules for voting. It's not done by, in most cases, by the federal government. It's really done state by state. And as Marjorie said, sometimes even within a state, there can be a lot of variability in terms of when uh, polls open, the, where you have the polls, the accessibility of polls is a very big issue in the United States because uh, in rural areas, how, where do you have those kinds of polls that don't require people to drive so far to get to them? And in large metropolitan and urban areas, you have to have many more polling places simply because of the need 
for not having such long lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, in many ways, it's not realistic to expect people to spend two and three hours, which is sometimes the case uh, in some of these precincts that we have today. So I think this whole way in which registration and the particular mechanics of voting uh, are conducted in this country needs a very close examination because many of the features that we have, uh, while we you know, we say we encourage people to vote, but when you look at some of the ways in which we require them to go about registering voting, it really is a discouragement. And we need to find ways, I think, that are fair and simple and provide easy access to the polls. Many other countries are far ahead of us. Some countries have uh, elections on holidays, for example, or Sundays, uh, and, and make it much easier for people who are working people to get to the polls. So I think we, and I th- hope we, we will, look very closely at what we can do to make the mechanics of registration and the requirements for registration and voting much more transparent and easier for citizens to uh, adapt to. I, yeah, I would compliment our, our local system and say that the flexibility, um, including opening up Sunday voting hours based on the response, has been fantastic. I would compliment Jim Fielder and his his crew. I'm sure they're exhausted and, and <laughs> ready for this to be over. But I thought that was a great response to the to the uh, amazing turnout that they've had. Absolutely. Now, the problem that they can't deal very much with is that perceptions govern this as well as reality. There will be undoubtedly a lot of people who decide to stay home because they they have the the sense that there will be long lines, whereas there may not. Um, In Super Tuesday, for example, there was, I think, an eight-state study that was done that found that the longest wait that people had that day in any of the areas was about 10 minutes. But you would get people's perceptions expecting a whole lot longer than that. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's not a lot Jim Fielder can do about convincing people that um, that that this is working. That people will not have to vote for after standing for hours. I mentioned briefly the the sort of changing political landscape, and of course, Indiana is a big part of that. And right now, uh, the closest congressional race in Indiana is the one in which Mark Souter, in some polls, is behind a guy who was actually a college classmate of mine, uh, who's 26 year old, first time candidate, lawyer. Um, and if he ends up winning, ends up dethroning, if you will, Mark Souter, who's been you know, in that seat for, for some time now, Indiana's congressional delegation will actually, across both houses, be 7-4 Democratic. Um, does, does that uh, by itself or does that with maybe Barack Obama squeaking out a, a victory in Indiana make this state a, a budding blue state or maybe a budding purple state? Let's <laughs> – Don't hold your breath. <laughs> but I, you know, you're citing that race. It does show just how bleak a picture Republicans face in terms of these congressional elections. You know, even six months ago, Republicans expected that they might lose a handful of seats in the House – um, because many of the closest seats had already been lost in 2006. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, I think most analysts conceded that, yes, they would lose maybe another handful of seats in the House and maybe several uh, Senate seats. But as the year has gone on, uh, the prospects for Republicans have become bleaker. And the particular race that you cite is a good example of this where uh, there are a number of Republican House members and senators who <clears throat> really would – in most circumstances would be considered safe seats and had regularly rolled up very high margins in terms of their previous elections who are really quite frankly fighting for their life in terms of mm-hmm. 2008. Uh, given what's happened in terms of the economy and how people mm-hmm. feel about the president and just generally what's happened in the country over the last six months and people's perceptions of it. It's led a lot of Republican candidates, incumbents uh, included, who would normally uh, be very strong candidates and being able to withstand a modest win against them. But uh, in many ways, Republican Party has faced a gale's wind in front of them. Mm -hmm. And that's beginning to have its toll on some candidates who would otherwise uh, be considered safe. I think that's one of the fascinating things about the question you first asked, Stan, which is the uniqueness of this race. 
we have uh, expected gains of the Democrats of um, well over 20, maybe over 25, and um, maybe at least five or six in the Senate, and yet the presidential race uh, is a lot closer. And, you know, it's a little hard to ignore the possibility that the real key there is if Barack Obama were not African-American, um, would his numbers be considerably higher? Hmm. I want to go to a phone call quickly. Joanne is on the line. Joanne, thanks for calling. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to say I was just down at early voting at 7th and Morton. Uh, the line looks pretty long and uh, frightening, I guess, if you don't realize that it's only taking about a half an hour to get through, oh. uh, maybe 45 minutes on the, off, on the long side. So uh, I would encourage people to get out uh, today, tomorrow, Sunday, or Monday morning to early voting if they have any reservations about their polling place on Tuesday. That's great. So that it is open again this Sunday. That's good to know. It is. It is, and uh, with the great weather that's predicted for the rest of the weekend and early next uh, week, uh, you know, even a short wait outside is a pleasant thing, particularly when people are doing something terrific for the country. That's right. You can have a good conversation with your fellow citizens. Absolutely, and you'll never feel so welcome because there's lots of great candidates out there. Uh, Elizabeth (laughs) Kerr was there today, (laughs) Kathy Smith. Uh, Jeff McKim, they all are, and as well as others who are making you feel very welcome. I'm sure they're 150 feet away welcoming you. They are. <laughs> they are, absolutely. And there are no T-shirts or buttons anywhere uh, within that line. All right. Joanne, can you confirm that early voting will remain open on Monday? Uh, I cannot confirm anything over and above what I have uh, read in the Herald Times and seen in print. Uh, it. To my understanding, it is open until noon on Monday. Thank you for your call, Joanne. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Let's, uh, we've got a couple of emails that have come in. Let's try to get those in. Uh, this show has gone so fast already. Uh, the first one is, is the evolving balance of power within the Republican Party such that Sarah Palin could likely become the new face of the party? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give you an uncharacteristically brief answer for a university professor. The the, uh, the Republican Party is is um, a bit less homogeneous right now than it has been in the past. It used to be very homogeneous over the last twenty years because it was a clear minority. Um, once it in the mid nineteen nineties, it it uh, started to gain considerable strength relative to the Democrats. That started to change, and what we've got is a group of. Um, very intensely feeling Christian evangelicals, um, people who are socially conservative on what has come to be defined as moral issues, i.e. abortion and same-sex marriage, as opposed to many other issues that uh, could certainly be defined as moral but aren't defined that way right now. Um, Those people see, I shouldn't say those people, many of those people see Sarah Palin as a hero. Um, their feeling is, and this is part of the longstanding American tradition of representation, not so much looking at people for how they feel, but with regard to who they are. Um, if these people are like me, they'll understand me better, and therefore I can trust them mm-hmm. to a greater extent. There's another chunk within the Republican Party that will not be at all pleased to see Sarah Palin's um, continued presence, um, those who are, for example, a lot of small business people, a lot of big business people, um, the more traditional Main Street Republicans who are more concerned about economic issues than they are about um, so-called moral issues. So it's going to be it's going to be quite an interesting struggle within the Republican Party. What about the converse of that? There are people who are saying that Sarah Palin was, was if you will, rolled out on a national stage too early and this yeah. could effectively end her national political career before it gets started. Is that a possibility? I I don't think that's a real possibility because uh, as Margie kind of alluded to, um, Sarah Palin is very popular among the social conservatives in the Republican Party. I mean you you can argue about what impact she will have on on the race. Most vice presidential nominees do not have a major impact. Uh, But one of the things she has done 
is to solidify the cultural conservatives for the McCain candidacy. He was not their first choice. He wasn't their second or third choice. So, um, I mean, one of the things that she's contributed to the campaign, to his campaign, Senator McCain's, is to solidify that support among social conservatives. And if you think about the Republican Party in the aftermath of Tuesday and assuming Senator Obama does win, then you look around the party and there's really no natural leader for the Republican mm-hmm. Party. Uh, Senator McCain is will be a defeated candidate and almost surely too old to be an active candidate in 2012. Um, Senator, uh, former President Bush, popularity is so low, it's hard to see what kind of leadership he would provide for the party. Uh, Vice President Cheney is kind of taking himself out of party politics uh, by not running for the presidency and announcing that before he became vice president. Uh, they have no um, you know, majority leadership in the House or Senate. So it really is a wide open situation in terms of who the leadership in the party is going to be. And frankly, uh, Governor Palin is uh, someone that many in the party would look to for continued leadership. So I don't think at all we've seen the last of her in terms of national politics and particularly in terms of uh, being a champion of the social conservatives within the Republican Party. All right. Here's the other email that came in. Uh, Has there ever been a carefully crafted study on the correlation in a national election of the number of bumper stickers on the road and the final vote? (laughs) If so, what were the results? I saw – I have to say I saw a really interesting bumper about two weeks ago. On one side, it said Obama 08 and the other side, it looked like a a very new bumper sticker that said Kennedy Johnson. (laughs) That's the first one of those I've seen. (laughs) The answer is no. Uh, Yeah. And uh, it comes back to the question of intensity that Ted addressed a little while ago, that um, we just can't expect a correlation between um, the the level of intensity of people's feelings about candidates and the number of actual votes that they're going to receive. Because in, for any candidate to win, they've got to get a bunch of unintense people voting for them. Mm-hmm. Although my husband swears by the yard sign count. So, you know, <laughs> whatever, for whatever that means. We want to get to one more phone caller here. Adrian is on the line. Adrian, thanks for calling in Noon Edition. Hello. Thank you. Um, I just have a question. Uh, I heard that term used earlier, moral issues. And what I don't understand, I guess, is that the people that always talk about the moral issues, and it seems like um, they're the ones that believe, you know, everyone should carry guns. They believe in war. They, they don't, I mean, they believe in the death penalty. And it seems like the reverence for life is more, they're more concerned about life before death, before birth, than they are life afterwards. And so what I'm wondering about is how that, you know, has become to be known as moral issues. Adrian, I think that's a very good question, and I think it illustrates um, what for me is the central fact of politics, and that's that politics is the effort to get your definition of an issue accepted by everybody else. I'm sure any of my students are probably thinking, oh, my God, there she goes again. Um, but in fact, you know, it's it's a testament to the fact that um, many of these groups, uh, conservative, um, social conservatives in the Republican Party, have done a dickens of a job of getting the term moral issues accepted to mean abortion and same-sex marriage mm-hmm. as opposed to feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless Um, which certainly are also Christian issues and Jewish issues and Muslim issues and everybody else's issues. Um, That it's it's worth reminding ourselves that um, we tend to surround ourselves with people who think like us. Mm -hmm. And so the people around us probably agree with our definition of what is a moral issue. But there are lots of people who disagree with that. And the question in politics is who's able to dominate the dialogue as to how that question is going to be defined. And um, the the social conservatives among the Republican Party have not necessarily succeeded in a whole lot of ways of changing American culture, but they certainly have succeeded in changing the nature of the dialogue. And, and just to follow up on that, and that's reflected very much, I have to say, in terms of the national media. 
because the national media has come to define moral issues along you know these dimensions of these cultural divisive issues like gay rights and abortion. Uh, and as they adopt that and that becomes part of the kind of national vocabulary, uh, it does kind of change the definition of what moral stands for. But if you think of morality, of course, it can come in many different guises and it doesn't have to be in a particular guise. But uh, as Margie points out, often about what you put in there because, of course, we all want to be considered moral mm -hmm. and we all want to stand up for morality. And so what you put in that definition uh, has a lot of effect in terms of how uh, the average person thinks about national politics. Mm -hmm. Adrian, thanks for your call. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I want to get to another sort of broad issue in our last couple of minutes here. Uh, throughout the day today, my assistant news director, Daniel Robison, and I are actually talking to a number of celebrities who we've been put in touch with by the Obama campaign. And we're asking them why people should listen to them when it comes to deciding for whom to vote. And it seems to me that there are more and more endorsements coming not just from the political figures and from the news organizations as it used to be, but there are more endorsements from the cover of People magazine now than there were from the cover of Time magazine 20 years ago. How does this, if at all, impact the political process, do you think? Probably poorly. Um, I, you know, I couldn't care less what anybody um, in Hollywood thinks about either Senator McCain or Senator Obama. Um, I'd much rather hear from people who know these folks and who have had the opportunity to observe them over a period of years. But uh, that doesn't answer your question. Um, clearly, it gets those particular uh, candidates' names out in front of the public. And for people who are not particularly engaged in politics but might become a little bit more engaged if um, Brad Pitt endorses somebody or if Kelsey Grammer endorses somebody. Um, I had just gotten an email a couple of days ago from Kelsey Grammer on behalf of the – not personally. <laughs> I'm on everybody's email list – on behalf of the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. Um, so the campaigns are picking up on the fact that there are at least some people whose, whose um, entry into politics may be sped up or facilitated – by some name that they associate with in some way. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a fairly rotten way to relate to a campaign. <laughs> but, but the other uh, part of this is this is part of a broader kind of uh, pattern that we have in terms of how popular culture and politics have become more uh, intermingled. So that, you know, now you see national candidates going uh, on venues and appearing on shows that would have been unheard of. We mm -hmm. didn't hardly have the shows, but mm -hmm. they would have been embarrassed to have appeared on them several decades ago. Mm -hmm. Now they can't wait to line up to get on these shows, even Bill if they're Clinton made fun of. Bill Clinton and his saxophone exactly. opened that up, didn't he? Well, I, am, <laughs> I am so sad we cannot continue this conversation any further. We've run to the end of our hour, but uh, my thanks to the both of you. It's been a, a wonderfully insightful and interesting conversation. Thank you for taking some of your afternoons for us. My thanks to my co-host, Mary Catherine Carmichael, as always. To uh, producer Ariana Prothero, engineer Michael Pashcash in the booth, and to, of course, all of our callers and emailers. Hey, take a look at our, our new website, wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can get in touch with us that way, and uh, we hope you will do so in the coming weeks. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. Thank you so much for tuning into Noon Edition. We'll talk to you again in the coming weeks. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.